Today's episode of Binge Mode Weekly on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities, like New York and Los Angeles. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. We're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it is an unbelievably great and useful cause. It really helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Me and Lost just kind of, kind of coexisted. Loss as your friend and constant companion. <laughs> yeah, that type of friend that takes a dump on your face every morning. <laughs> That's the guy. Can I tell you something, Jamie? Which is a promise. Just a straight up promise from me to you. Okay. Binge Mode contains adult content and spoilers. That's big data. What does that... What does that mean? And now, Binge Mode. The best lack of conviction. The worst are full of passionate intensity. Binge Mode Weekly, yes. proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Uh. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, it's a great website, folks. Joining me today, now that he's finished carving a statue of Isaac that will loom above the tree line in all of our work, it's Ringer CD Creative, your tech overlord. That's right. Jason Concepcion. It's mostly 3D printed parts. Mal, <laughs> you know what happens to Messiahs, right? They record podcasts. I thought they got to go to paradise. We're back with another special quarantine edition of Binge Mode Weekly, where as we social distance amid the coronavirus crisis, we'll be coming to you once a week to cover a series of rotating topics, revisiting some past favorites, and diving into some news stories as well, while also getting to work on the next full Binge Mode project. More info on that front coming soon. Stay tuned. Many of you have devs level ability to predict what that is. <laughs> Please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or we'll send old man Kent in your way. <laughs> you know what that means. You know what that means. 
Get ready to take a bath. That's right. If he asks you to fill up the tub, say no. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to play Sudoku with Sergey. It's password protected, though, so just be aware. Also, if you're looking to spice up your work-from-home wardrobe and zoom into your Amaya meetings, please head to theregor.com slash shop. Check out our binge mode merch. New tea with Arthur Miller. Clapping Marilyn Monroe's cheeks. Coming soon. <laughs> oh, man. Designed by Stuart himself. I know. Last time on Binge Mode Weekly, we enjoyed a truly lovely multi-hour quarantine chat. I, let's pal. do it every day. I wish we could, man. Jason Manzukis. And today, we're going deep. Deep, 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 deep. Deep, 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 deep. Deep enough to fit all the cubits, you know? Infinitely deep. (laughs) On devs, Alex Garland's FX miniseries sci-fi tech thriller. As always, spoiler warning, of course. Sorry. We will be going deep on details from devs, and we're going to dip into some of Garland's other work, Ex Machina, Annihilation, etc., and some of our other favorite stories that examine some of these yes. themes that we will be discussing when talking about devs. So brush up on your Yates because it's time to head into Chekhov's vacuum seal. Mel, what am I actually doing here? I'm not going to tell you. I won't need to. Well, we better start by offering a brief refresher on what actually happens in Devs. Alex Garland's eight-episode limited series, By Crossing the Bridge, Following the Halo Lights, and Walking Down the Forest Path. (laughs) You've got that delivery down pat, buddy. (laughs) Thank you. Love that flat tone. (laughs) All right, we are going to keep this plot summation as brief as we can, because obviously we're talking about an eight-hour project here. After her partner, Sergey, a.k.a., as he will be known henceforth on this podcast, Mr. Zoe Kravitz. Mr. Zoe Kravitz. See him ejaculate in in Gaspar Noe's love. Yes, that's in a different project, not in devs. (laughs) After Sergey dies mysteriously, Shortly after taking a position in the devs division at Amaya, Lily Chan is driven to investigate. With the help of her ex, Jamie, a cybersecurity expert, and I have to say, very doting partner, considering she had previously broken his heart. I mean, the slice of the lemon and the cup of water. Lovely stuff. One of the most brutal friend zone depictions ever put (laughs) to a visual medium. (laughs) It's tough, though, you know, they do, uh, they reconnect in both reality, you know, in the biblical sense, and then also in an eternal sense in the Sim, Jay. So there's that. Spoiler alert. Share my bed with Jamie. (laughs) I I gotta say, we could do an entire podcast on whether anybody in the history of the world has ever said, share my bed as a way to ask somebody to have sex. Share my bed. And then repeated it multiple times. (laughs) With the help of Jamie, Lily discovers that Sergei had ties to Russian intelligence 
The Sudoku app on his phone, Jason. He hates Sudoku. What's it there for? It's there to communicate with his handlers. And he never updated. You think he'd be like, hold on, I hate Sudoku. Can we make it look like something else? (laughs) Gradually, she's drawn into a web of interlocking puzzles. Forrest, the genius behind Amaya, has been operating a secretive project powered by quantum computing called Devs. Or is it called Devs? Dun, dun, dun. Housed in a gleaming gold futuristic enclosure, Devs allows users to observe any moment in the past. But secretly, Forrest and his partner Katie have been using it to view the future as well. Uh, with yes. Forrest driven by the goal of reconnecting with his late daughter, Amaya, who died in a car crash years earlier. Tragic stuff. Project the past, predict the future. Central to that mission is Lily. From viewing the future, breaking the own rule that they set for everyone else at devs, of course, Forrest and Katie, Allison Pill, out there crushing it, know that Lily will take an action that causes devs to stop functioning as intended. <laughs> and yet, it never occurs to them that it might be because she makes a choice that derails the tram lines they keep talking about. Forrest and Katie, or is it? Deus itself. (laughs) Maneuver Lily to a breaking point. And Forrest shows Lily a future in which she shoots Forrest inside the heart of the Dev's facility. Really channeling her inner Jesse Pinkman. Yeah. Yeah, bish magnets. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, despite Dev's predictions, Lily throws away her gun. She and Forrest die when the cage they're in crashes to the ground. Lily awakes in another reality the morning before Sergei joined Amaya. There, she meets Forrest, who's reunited with his wife and daughter. He tells her that they now live in an exact replica of their world, running inside the dev supercomputer, one of the many simulated realities they now inhabit. Do not unplug the computer for any reason. <laughs> and I need to bring in the government to help me keep the computer plugged in and protect the many worlds. Make sure it stays on. It can go to screensaver, but it cannot go to sleep. <laughs> Good old Lily and her choice. Should we do bells for all the dead people or should we not do bells because they no, live not, on in the city? They live on. There's no bells. In this reality, there's no bells, but there's realities where there are bells. Man, some realities there are bells, some there aren't. Anton the Handler, who got his neck snapped in a wheel well and can't even get fucking bells on binge mode. Sorry, Anton. He got beat up by a 65-year-old man. (laughs) Spoiler, Um, we'll be talking about this. (laughs) This is Jason's single favorite part of devs to discuss. Big picture questions about choice versus destiny. How our humanity drives or blinds us? No. Jason wants to talk about Kenton's physical prowess and only that. It it took me out of it, man. (laughs) Jason. Yes. This is forgiveness. Good. This is absolution. Good. You made no decision to betray me. I love it. You could only have done what you did. Thank you. And And that gets us to this episode's really big idea. So let's head to the viewing chamber. Boot up the sim. The defining theme of this episode is, of course, free will and determinism. 
Let's open with one for Bobby B. A quick one. A quick one. Did you like devs? Let's just start with that in a big picture sense before we dive into some of the more specific questions that we have from the philosophical nature of the viewing experience. How did you find this as a show? I enjoyed it. And obviously, I found the concepts fascinating, uh, the look of it fascinating. It was probably the best looking show on TV during these last eight weeks or whatever. It was frustrating, but I think I'm glad that it exists. It's just one of those that I'm glad that there are creators that get to take shots like this. This is like a, a, you know, a full court heave. They got rim, but, (laughs) you know, a great attempt that I ultimately enjoyed. What about you? Yeah, I feel similarly. You know, I didn't think it was a perfect show or a perfect story, certainly, but I'm really, really, really glad that it exists. I appreciate stories in any form, whether it's a novel, a comic, a television show, a movie, any form of exploring some sort of sci-fi philosophical exploration that may or may not deliver on the answers front, but I find incredibly fascinating to consider on the questions front. And even though I I like devs a little less than some of Garland's other work, like Ex Machina, for example, a film I think we both really enjoy, I have always felt that way about Alex Garland's work, period. Like, I liked Annihilation as a movie. We did a Annihilation podcast during the last Binge Mode Weekly stint, and I explained at the time one of the most disorienting viewing experiences of my life because I chose to read that book that day and then go right to the theater. And it was like, am I in the shimmer now? (laughs) But, you know, re-watching that movie this week to get back into the Garland hive mind, I was like, does this make sense? You know, I'm not sure it does, but that's also okay because it's interesting to think about. Similarly, Ex Machina, which I I really yeah. like adore as a movie and I think it's great fabulous. Movie. When I rewatched it this week, it delivered a little less than I had remembered on some of the fully realized oh, philosophical yeah. and intellectual pursuits. Yeah. But it still made me ask questions about the nature of consciousness and free will that I really enjoy pursuing in stories. So I'm grateful that this exists. I think that the choice to make this a television show instead of a movie is interesting and probably worth talking about it for a second. You know, Garland has been very open both before this came out and subsequently about how this had to be a show for him, how he was was tired of the studio. Yes, the studio production process around films. And the way he puts it is like he felt the second he shipped it off, like he had already disappointed somebody. And the ideas that he is attempting to examine are by their very nature incredibly complex. You know, later today when we get to the Citadel, the Jedi Temple, now the lab, you're going to explore the actual science behind the show, which is not an easy thing to do. And so in that sense, I think saying, okay, let's make this an eight-hour project instead of a two-hour one is sensible. I don't know that that time actually delivered four times the insight, though, I guess is what I would say. You know, it's interesting. I I had the same kind of reaction in rewatching Garland's work in the run-up to this in the sense that, you know, it's a lot of, I I would use like a metaphor of a meal. It's like you have a wonderful salad come out and then you have like a great soup 
The appetizers are amazing. Some wonderful drinks. The bread is fresh out of the oven with this wonderful creamy butter. And then the main course kind of never arrives. Right. But you've had a, a really interesting experience. And as, you know, I'm going to get into the best of my ability. I'm going to get into the science underpinning this story a little later in the podcast. But I think that when delving into that, I can't help but think a lot of that is an outgrowth of his interest in quantum mechanics, in the debate between free will and determinism, because so much of it is unfinished in and of itself. And I think that he can't help but when building stories based on these concepts and ideas and and areas of scientific study, in a sense, he can't help but create something that feels just south of satisfying because everything that it's built on is unsatisfyingly incomplete. Yeah, I think the meal analogy is really apt, actually, because one of the things that happened in Devs or Deus is, spoiler, you get to the end and the thing that the show asks you to accept is that the chocolate souffle, which you're supposed to order at the beginning of the meal if you want it to be ready in time, was actually the whole point, that it was just about that ending. You know, again, if you catch up on some of the interviews that Garland has been doing, I think it's really interesting to hear him put such emphasis on Lily and Jamie reuniting at the end as the final note, the totality of what that was about. If you headed into that restaurant expecting a marvelous steak, you are going to be disappointed. Yes. Pretty much no matter what. So some of that is about expectation and some of it is, is about execution. I find the core ambition of the premise, the premise that he is exploring here to be totally fascinating. It's something that I'm Same. really, really, really glad we got to spend eight weeks digesting and thinking about. The point you made about the science and the interest in science is, I think, really interesting because Garland speaks about, and again, I, I admire this part of it, yeah. how in so many stories— the science is so stuffy. It's so dry. It's so boring. And you're going to lose people before you even get them in there. And that part of the reason that he wanted to, you know, you mentioned the aesthetics of the show. I mean, the visual palette of devs is astonishing. It's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. show. The music, both the score and the soundtrack, are almost on par with the visuals in terms of just this incredibly both pleasant and disorienting, deliberately really riveting sensory experience as you're watching Mm -hmm. it. He wants science to be beautiful, right? There's poetry in this show. There are all these things that heighten the literary and sensory aspect of what you are consuming. But at the end of the day, if you get to the end and say, Either I'm not quite sure where the show landed on its core message, or I am sure, but I don't totally know how we got there. And that's how that's what we're going to parse next. Yes. Your mileage may vary on whether that's a satisfying experience. You know, a show that is built in some level on philosophy, but in some level on actual quantum mechanics is always going to be a balancing act, right? If you lean too far into consistently presenting the actual science, which obviously some people would very much enjoy. I don't want to imply otherwise. There's a really, really, really high barrier to entry there for a lot of other people. And you risk 
if not alienating, then just losing a certain portion of the people you're trying to reach. If you go too far in the other direction, though, not dumbing it down, because I don't think devs did that, actually. It doesn't do that at all. Yeah, no. But in some way, limiting the specificity of the science or the incorporation of the science into the pursuit, then you're not going to be able to actually follow through on the intellectual rigor that the entire thing is built on. It would be like the electromagnetics that are supposed to hold up Chekhov's vacuum seal not having been properly installed in the first place. And so that is hard. That's hard before you even start to make it, is figuring out that balancing act. Like, I'm curious what you think about that part of devs in particular, whether that was successful. Was there too much of that? Not enough? We do get access to that through many different characters' eyes, which I think is helpful. You know, a scene like Katie and Lyndon at the dam is I think probably one of the moments for many viewers where the idea of what the multiverse actually is for the show clicks, even though that is one of the most emotionally gutting and morally complex sequences in the entire show. So in in a way, you could say that's where it succeeds because it brings all of them together. And in another way, you could say, well, that is maybe why it doesn't succeed because we're not talking about any of the main characters or plot points there. You know, there's always a tension between exposition and like character in any kind of story. I think about Game of Thrones season four, when we're the opening episode where we're introduced to Oberyn Martell and he gives you this huge download on everything that's happened with Dorne and the relationship with the Lannisters and how fraught it is because of the murder of his family that happened years ago. And it's this huge download of information that is given to you in this really dramatic, compelling way through the lens of a character and you are just invested And what really has happened is this incredible magic trick where you've just been downloaded this immense ream of information, but in a really entertaining way. I think that the best version of that in devs, for me, is probably the scene, the flashback scene. Katie is in the viewing room. She's watching a bunch of things that have happened in the past. And she's watching episode five. She's watching her meeting with Forrest. She's watching a lecture. He's there to kind of like scout her. She's been put on his Mm -hmm. radar. And it is a lecture about Everett's many worlds interpretation and the various interpretations of that and what it might possibly mean. And she gets, and we're watching the lecturer, you know, explain a certain experiment that suggests that there are many worlds that exist and that a certain particle in this experiment appears to take two paths simultaneously and what that might mean. And then Katie gets very fired up emotionally about the lecturer's introduction of a certain hypothesis that she feels is, like, objectionable. And I thought that was probably the best version of that, where, yes, you're given this big download of concepts and information, and you're hit with Penrose interpretation and and von Neumann Wigner and all these kind of like specialty terms that we'll get into again later in the podcast. But you're also given that through the lens of a character who's having an emotional response and you understand, oh, there's strong feelings behind these really ethereal kind of concepts. That to me was the best version of that. I also feel like, you know, the show, the show can kind of veer into this almost like too airy realm of where these concepts need to be like grounded in something concrete that these characters are touching. But I think that the best version of that is that, is that scene, episode five. Yeah. 
That gets us to our next big question, which is, you know, where does devs land on its own big idea, this tension between determinism and choice, free will, agency? Control over your own future and your own life is obviously at the heart of the show. What is the actual message in the end? And and how do the characters get there? Is there clarity for them and for us? And we'll go kind of, not every single step-by-step, but broadly step-by-step here to kind of parse what I think when you're just watching the finale can feel like a bit of a, wait, how did Forrest get here exactly? Where the entire show, he is rigidly opposed to the multiverse because of what it means, which is that it is not his Amaya, his daughter. Why does that matter? Because he holds himself responsible for the death of his daughter and his wife. We see that gutting sequence of the car crash and the phone call. If determinism guides the universe, then he is not to blame because that was where the tram line was going and it's always where it was going. This is, it's not elemental to his stance of the show. It is everything. It is his entire existence. On a rewatch, there are a few more moments than I recalled watching it for the first time where you are primed to accept that he will get to the moment at the end after his and Lily's death when he is in the sim and Katie says, basically, you can be with your wife and daughter again, but I need you to understand what that means and it means you're in the multiverse and you'll be with them in all of the different universes, not just the one you want, not just Yuramaya. So... Let's run through some of that, but I I will just say back to the exposition point for a second. Lily is the main character, but Forrest and his dilemma are the heart of the show. I mean, that's it. You know, if drama is a character attempting to get something and either getting it or not getting it, and there being vastly different stakes for those two options, then what this story is about is Forrest trying to reconnect with his daughter and either succeeding or failing. That's the yes. dramatic heart of this show. Yes. And so it is simultaneously the character and the area in which the two driving forces of the show, the science and the humanity, come together the most clearly for us. This person is driven by what is in his heart, this loss, this defining mm-hmm. loss, the love, as he will say, the paths love leads you down are extraordinary. It is also thus, definitionally, the character in the area where we are most likely to say, wait a minute, does that fully track or did that come together clearly enough? I thought that expositionally, some of the clunkiest stuff in the show was also some of the stuff that didn't actually matter. And so weirdly and counterintuitively, I found it the most frustrating. Like, for example, the scene where Lily seeks out Jamie initially to have him help her crack into Sergey's phone and figure out the truth behind his death. And Jamie runs through beat by beat their right, breakup. Their breakup. So that we understand their history. And we need to understand their history and the emotional right. baggage that they're carrying for each other. People don't talk that way. Yeah. Like people just don't talk that way to each other. And so again, maybe because I am not it might shock you to hear I'm not a quantum physicist. And so <laughs> my ability to say, oh, is that how that lecture would go? Yeah. Is literally non-existent for me. Whereas yeah. like, is this how you talk to your ex-boyfriend is something that I <laughs> have a little more experience with. And after we chat through the free will and determinism question a little bit more, we're going to circle back to some of those questions about the human aspect of the show, the people 
what drove them? And obviously those things are intertwined, but I think it's also worth kind of separating them if we can to see how it all came together. If the tram lines ran in parallel nature as they should for Forrest, at least. I, well, I think that the conversation re Forrest and Lily, I think it really helps bring into focus some of the issues with the show as it progressed, you know, very strong start, but then it kind of like, as the scope widens, it gets a little fuzzier. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, what was Lily trying to do? She wanted to find out why Sergei, what happened to Sergei and why he was killed. And she basically does that pretty early on. Yes, Mm -hmm. what Devs does is a question that is kind of like saved for where uh, her and Jamie go to Forrest's house and they hang out and play Frisbee and she has a talk with Katie. But essentially her mission is like accomplished halfway through the season. So then it feels like that that's where, for me, the series loses a little bit of the propulsion that it had early on where it's like this mission, what happened to Sergei? Unlock the Sudoku app, meet with the spy, what happened? Uh, getting caught up in all this stuff. And then all of a sudden right. that kind of just like peters out and we lose a lot of the momentum. So it's funny that you say that. I, three days ago, would have completely agreed with you. That was my mm. exact experience watching the show in real time as it aired. I thought the first half of the season was like mesmerizing and I yeah. could not wait to see where it went. As we started to get into the answer realm after the question realm, I was like, did this deliver the way that I wanted it to? I'm not totally sure, but I am looking forward to thinking about it more and asking myself that more and asking you. When I rewatched it, the first half of the season just doesn't matter at all. It is almost irrelevant to the actual (laughs) ambition and endgame of the show. Like, to sit again through multiple episodes where Lily is investigating Sergei's death, trying to dupe Kenton into this whole pursuit, her hospitalization. I mean, obviously the stuff with Pete pays off. Another Chekhov's gun in the show, you know, in addition to the vacuum seal is Pete's presence the entire time. That stuff pays off. The Lily-Jamie relationship pays off, but actually completely at the expense of the Lily-Sergei relationship. When she's in the sim at the end and she sees Sergei, It's not, oh, here's another chance for me. It's this person lied to me every day of our lives together, and it wasn't what I thought it was. Now, again, I find that question of basically if you got a do-over with somebody you thought you loved, but you knew something completely different about them, would you be able to try to find that happiness together again? And the fact that the answer for her is no, I think is actually awesome. And really cool. But that is not what the show was about. (laughs) I agree with you. I think like structurally, you know, there's just like a lot of weird first half, second half of the season things. You know, But I I think for me, like the scene and the sequence that I thought was just the best was her duping Kenton going out on the ledge of the building and then he coming out and just an incredibly calm way talking her off ledge in in a way that gives you insight into the kind of steeliness that this person must have under extremely pressure-filled conditions to be able to Mm -hmm. carry this off the way he did. And then the reveal that, like, her friend had helped her with this and them breaking out into laughter as they drive away. We never see that friend again. That's gone. Jen just is not a part of the second half of the season. It doesn't matter. She's (laughs) out of it. (laughs) And that's weird. 
Yeah, that sequence is really, again, like quite heart-thumping the first time you're watching yeah, it. And then it when is. you return to it, because the show in some ways comes down in a more pro-free will place than we were expecting. Now, the multiverse, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more as we go. The multiverse on the show is presented still as a deterministic outcome, to be clear. But there is free will in your world, in the world you're in, the choice you made, Lily's decision to throw the gun away, Forrest's decision to opt into the sim that Katie is saying he has to opt into, Stuart's decision, though he makes a reference to the fact that he didn't have control, all of those things are presented at the end as actual choices people made in their reality. But also with the understanding that in the many worlds that the show presents and the science on which it's based, all of those other realities still unfold too. So when I rewatched Lily on the Ledge, it doesn't matter to me anymore that she and Jen are playing out this ruse and that Kenton is participating as their pawn. The thing that mattered and that I found really dismaying, again, in a way I like to think about, is that Forrest is down there watching them knowing why everything is happening. Yeah. And this gets into... We can actually now talk about this. This gets into the question of where the show actually came down on its own central question. Because for it to end in Katie and Forrest saying, well, what happened there? Oh, Lily made a choice. And this aspect of it that Lily is special and different because she was able to make that choice. I didn't feel rewatching it that that conclusion was totally supported along the way, even though I was actually relieved, like in a physiological way. I breathed the sigh of relief that that was the outcome. When she tossed the gun away, I said, thank God. But if we go step by step, it's like, eh, so let's just go through it. Garland, I think this is an important thing to say, as a stylist, as an intellectual, as a filmmaker, TV maker, is sometimes willfully and deliberately complex. He doesn't want to make it easy on people. And he is dispositionally as interested or maybe more interested in the question then in the answer. This is an important backdrop for pursuing yes, this. I think that that's a great way to put it. I thought that what he said in an interview he did after the finale this week with Alan Sepinwall in Rolling Stone is worth sharing. Sepinwall asked him about, in general, Garland's comfort with the ambiguous nature of the public's response to his work. And not, did you like it? Did you understand it? Did you understand what he was trying to say? Okay. And here's what he said. This is a longer answer, but this snippet of it. It, and it in this case is The Beach, the novel that he wrote. You may have seen the Leo DiCaprio film. I have. It taught me early on that my intentions weren't that important. It took me a long time to fully take that idea on board. I used to resist it and go, no, no. What I'm trying to say is this. Then I realized that's almost an opposition to what stories are and that half of the story is what the viewer brings to the story. I find that incredibly fascinating. Two Same. reasons. One, and I don't mean this, this will sound uncharitable. It's not how I mean it. You're kind of letting yourself off the hook a little bit if you say that. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But two, I think he's exactly right. 
And that is, of course, as somebody consuming a story, the thing that is almost most precious about it to me. That's something we talk about here all the time. How does the thing that you are reading or watching unlock something for you about your life and your experience and your pursuit? And that might not be totally in line with the intention of the person who's making it, but that is part of the miracle of storytelling, period, is that it can happen that way for you. It's a great way to put it. Like this is a now this is a little preview of our saga conversation, but there's a great mm. listen in saga. There is an incredible couple page sequence between the author D. Oswald Heist and Ugh. Marco and Alana as they arrive at his lighthouse. They're talking about his book. He had previously just when questioned about the intentions of a certain work that he had written, said, no, that was, I did that for money. It was like a quick throw off. Like that was all about the paycheck. There's no deeper message. Alana shows up and she's like, you were saying this. And he's like, yes, finally, somebody sees me. That's exactly what I was going for. You see it. You understand it. You're right. And I think that that is just one of the kind of timeless tensions that are, Mm -hmm part of storytelling. Whatever the story means to the author, once that story is put out into the world, it can't help but take on a myriad different facets depending on who is engaging with that story. And whether that audience can see through to the kernel of truth that the author was trying to place in that thing is a question that can't really be answered except on an individual basis. And all things are true. What that story means to one person will be different from what the story means to another person. And those are universally true. Yes, completely. And so that is a very effective way to frame the next part of our discussion, which is how did we process it? And that might not be the same way that other people did. And that is totally fine. And indeed, the point. We talk all the time on this podcast about the conflict between choice and destiny, how that theme recurs in fantasy stories. And it is foundational to what Devs was about. Determinism, the question of determinism, the comfort or discomfort that you find in thinking about a deterministic universe is the driving force behind the bulk of the show until the moment where choice enters it. So is the future fixed? This is the central question. Do we have free will and the ability to determine our own fate, or is it predetermined? Are we just sitting in the tram as far as tram lines move? So one of the interesting things about devs from a structural perspective is that the episodes open with these montages that are these snapshots and teases of things that are going to occur later in those episodes. It is like a meta application of the theme. The future is set and it is knowable, Until, of course, it isn't. Now, that's the part I'm still hung up on is why don't more people do things that mean it isn't? But again, mileage may vary. So can we change it? Can we exert free will if we know what the future is supposed to be, as Katie and Forrest do and as Lily does after they tell her? Can we, totally absent of the knowledge that a thing like Devs and Deus exists, let's start with Forrest's stance right at the beginning in episode one. Yeah, he sets it up right away. Quote, the universe is deterministic. It's godless and neutral and defined only by physical laws. The marble rolls because it was pushed. The man eats because he's hungry. An effect is always the result of a prior cause. The life we lead with all its apparent chaos is actually a life on tram lines. Prescribed, undeviating, deterministic. 
I know it doesn't feel that way, Sergey. We fall into an illusion of free will because the tram lines are invisible. And we feel so certain about our subjective state, our feelings, our opinions, judgments, decisions. Don't listen to those crunching footsteps of the man with the plastic bag behind you. Just stand there very still. The super thin plastic bag. <laughs> we can that... get into that. <laughs> well, I mean, well, let's just do it now, quickly. Yeah, let's Not just to, do it now. Here, Isaac listen. has that, oh my God, you guys are derailing yourselves every three seconds, even though you told me you wouldn't face that we're so familiar with. But no better time than the present to talk about Sergey's needless death. Yes. Right after that monologue, Kenton <gasps> sneaks up behind Sergey and puts a plastic shopping bag over his face and snuffs him out. Sergey's hands are not restrained at all. If you rewatch it, he's laying on the ground, Kenton's on him and holding the bag tight with both hands. And Sergey's choking to death. But like, just hook your finger up, poke a hole in the bag where your mouth is and just tear the bag open and live. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. (laughs) Just do that and live. Push the fucking tram off its line, man. Try to save yourself. What is that? It's ridiculous. Carl Glussman is like a huge person, too. That made it even harder to believe that he wouldn't just try to use his strength. Huge in what way? (laughs) Oh, Mr. Zoe Kravitz. Boy. So this is Forrest, essentially, with this monologue letting himself off the hook for the things that have happened to him. He was on the phone with his wife as she was driving their child back to the house. And as we see later, she says, you know, I hate talking off on the phone. I'll talk to you in person in 30 seconds. Right. And she runs a stop sign and boom, car crash. They are killed. No statue of the wife on the Amaya campus, by the way. No wall decals of the wife's face. Just the kid. Tough look for my wife. Um, <laughs> he later says to Sergey, this is forgiveness. This is absolution. You made no decision to betray me. This is after the reveal that Sergey was stealing proprietary information for right. Russian intelligence, which James Forrest knew all along. Yeah. You made no decision to betray me. You could only have done what you did. He is projecting this basically about himself. This is all about his internal yes. turmoil about the role he had in his daughter's demise. Yes. Lily's eventual death inside of Devs, Forrest's death inside of Devs, the electromagnetic seal breaking, all of that is foretold pretty early in the series, actually. Not the Forrest death and the vacuum seal aspect of it, but the fact that Lily is going to meet this end. We're moving toward that with clarity that we will be, at least to some extent. Forrest and Katie, we learn, they know it all. They have to hold on to that. Forrest has to hold on to that because he has to believe. But there are some clues throughout, at least on some level, that even Forrest believes, while he may not say it out loud or even allow himself consciously to feel it, that the tram can come off the line. Couple examples. The scene you mentioned earlier with Lily on the ledge outside of Kenton's office. When Forrest is talking to Kenton after that, he says, that was very close, Kenton. It nearly fucked the universe. Now, not the most elegant writing, but that's almost beside the point. Is he just fucking with Kenton here? Because, of course, there are plenty of moments where they do, you know, for example, saying, don't bother quitting smoking without ever telling him, Right. I'm telling you, you don't need to quit smoking because you're going to fucking be murdered by Pete, (laughs) the secret Russian agent. (laughs) 
Kenton makes his big speech later in the season about how he's not going to go to jail. He knows about Forrest's tram line principle, but he does not know his own fate. They have not told him. So maybe yeah. this is just Forrest continuing to play out the ruse to keep Kenton on the tram line, just like he needs to try to keep Lily on it. But maybe it's an insight to the fact that he actually has a little bit of doubt, the kind of doubt that would prime us to accept his eventual change yes. of heart at the end. Similarly, in episode four, this one is more important. Forrest and Katie have one of their many heartfelt, candid exchanges. And he says, what if we project one minute into the future right now and see you folding your arms and you say, fuck the future. I'm a magician. My magic breaks tram lines. I'm not going to fold my arms. You put your hands in your pockets and you keep them there until the clock runs out. Now, I think probably the bulk of the audience, my response certainly was, yeah, exactly. What if yeah. you just did that? Her response, though, is to bring him back in. It's like Godfather 3. They pull you back in. <laughs> right when you thought you were out. Cause precedes effect, she says. Effect leads to cause. The future is fixed in exactly the same way as the past. The tram lines are real. In 48 hours, Lily will die. There's no magic. Effectively, it's already happened. Now, I would argue that that scene does a couple things. One, again, primes us to understand that on some level, Forrest has questions about the thing that he claims he has no questions about and right. believes in totally. It either works or it doesn't fully, as right. he says many times. We know that the emotion, the loss, the grief is what drives him. For Katie, it is the science. And you need that anchor in the show. The person who does not have the same personal connection to it. Though we learn later in the show that she has a personal connection to Forrest, which introduces, I think, one of the actually really interesting things the show could have explored and then just doesn't which is what if you fell in love with somebody and the whole thing you were trying to help them do was basically erase yourself from their life? Yeah. That would have been a cool thing to focus on. That point brings up a really interesting aspect of this entire debate, which is the paradox kind of inherent in the idea of knowing the future. Mm -hmm. If the world is deterministic, right, and you were always going to go to this one place, but part of that is... What drives you to that place is knowledge of where you are going, of knowledge of the right. future, in a sense. Then where does that begin and where does that end? Are you going there because you were told to go there or were you always going to go there even if you were never told? Or right. is Dev's existence and the knowledge of the future integral to that future? Like all of this is just like, it's just a circle. Like where does the prophecy end and where do you begin. Lily asking, what if I just don't go to Dev's is right. an important question because like, well, yeah, what if she doesn't? But then yes, is being told you will go to Dev's tonight the thing that drives her to go to Dev's? It's just like, yes, you could just run around in a circle forever trying to figure out where determinism and free will end in this particular setup of knowing the future. Yes, and we will parse that a little bit more, not only with that aspect of the plot that you just described, Lily basically saying, I refuse, and Katie saying, it doesn't matter. And then Lily ending up there anyway, despite saying she wouldn't. But of course, then in the moment of seeming to fulfill the prophecy, ultimately subverting it, you have a similar exchange with Katie and Lyndon before Lyndon's death, which 
is a good one to dive into a little bit more in terms of the moral complexity at play that the show does not explore and really should. We'll also talk a little bit more later about the symbols that Garland returns to, like the snake Mm -hmm. eating its own tail, the infinity symbol, Lily's infinity symbol necklace. Think of Annihilation and the tattoo on Lena's arm. This idea of the interconnected nature of reality and the infinite aspect and what cause and effect really mean, I think Garland thinks is a little more complex than the characters on this show do. Because the scene where Lily and Jamie go to Forrest's house and Jamie and Forrest have their bro session playing Frisbee bonding outside, which I actually thought was like really cute and charming. And Katie and Lily have the more complex discussion inside. Katie boils it down to the pen move because I pushed it. There is no randomness in the universe and a effect is always preceded by the cause. So again, Katie is really one of her primary functions in the show is that she is, even though she does not have the emotional motivation or perhaps maybe because she does not have the emotional motivation. And even though she knows that she knows and says that Forrest is wrong, that the multiverse is real and that his insistence on his world and his outcome is not correct. She's the one who introduces Lyndon's sound wave method to the light Mm. waves as well. She believes, or at least espouses, the fundamental science of it and is that anchor that keeps us oriented to what the dev's experience is supposed to be all about. So if Forrest is fixed for the bulk of the show in his insistence on a deterministic universe and on one world, not many, despite his doubts, it is because, as we've said, he has to let himself off the hook. This entire behemoth that he's built. You know, a senator comes to meet with him about the power of Amaya, the fear that people have about devs without even knowing what it is. You know, it's very clear that he is this titanic figure in the world. And of course, one of the, I think, less elegantly handled aspects of the show comes into play later when all of the characters start talking, including himself, start talking to him about a messiah. And this is where the critique of our actual real world Silicon Valley culture and the tech overlord comes into play in the show as it often does. You know, think of Nathan and Blue Book from Ex Machina. Forrest can only believe in one world because he needs his Amaya back, not just an Amaya until he changes his mind later. But this is for the bulk of the show as he establishes from the very, very opening with Sergey. That becomes clearest for us when he fires Lyndon. Most interestingly, Lyndon and Stuart, when Lyndon is showing everybody this breakthrough, we can see and hear Jesus on the cross. Right. They say that this is still deterministic. This is the thing you were looking for. Because that's how Forrest has explained it. Determinism. Tramlines. Lyndon says it's still deterministic. Stuart says deterministic because everything that can happen will happen. And Lyndon says, and that's as deterministic as you can get. But Forrest completely rebels against it to the point where he fires Lyndon, threatens to kill Lyndon, (laughs) and explains it by saying, not our Jesus from our history, Jesus from a history. And every time you run the system, you'll get a different outcome. And Lyndon says, but the difference might be a single hair on Jesus's head. And you might think, oh, well, that seems pretty minor. But to Forrest, that's the entire point, right? Right. No. It will be that difference and three hairs difference and four and a thousand and all points in between in either side. And then later when he and Katie are talking and she's saying, you fired my most talented engineer, 
he says, if it's not our Jesus, it's not Maya Maya. And does every hair on her head matter? Yes, it does. And that is the complete and total substance of his position. Two kind of keys to this exchange. He needs it to be his daughter. It's got to be her. Not slightly off, not slightly off to the left, not with her hair in a slightly different color. It has to be her and it has to be deterministic so that he is off the hook for the events that led to her death. This is what Katie says to him. Quote, I think devs is how you put yourself on trial. It's judge and jury. If it works, determinism precludes free will and you're absolved. You did no wrong. But if it doesn't work, you had choices and you're guilty. If it doesn't work, I'm damned, Forrest says. And we see, of course, the softening happening in real time because Katie's maybe brilliant, maybe cruel, maybe not mutually exclusive choice there is to say, well, watch this and tell me it's not your daughter. Applying Lyndon's principle to the light waves, showing Forrest and Amaya, but not his. And what's his response to that out loud? He says, oh, Christ, which, of course, achieves two things. Not subtly, but achieves them. One. Not subtly, yeah. (laughs) Leaning in further to the deus reveal at the end, God in the machine, the messianic nature of what they are pursuing, but also his decreased resistance to embracing the multiverse and being with his daughter in any way that he can. And the show really shifts hard into the multiverse Starting at the beginning of episode five, we open, you know, you talked already about all of the different glimpses of the accident that we get a little bit later. Here, we open with all of these different lilies in her apartment, different Sergeys, different Jamies even, you know, what could have been for them. We see the accidents later on. In a future episode, we will see Lyndon fall Time and time and time again. We start to get these glimpses ingrained into the fabric of each episode of how the multiverse would unfold, what the different outcomes in each world would look like in a way that establishes well before the ultimate reveal that that is where the show is going, that the show is going to come down in a pro-multi-worlds, the multiverse is real place. And then the thing to figure out will be how you can reconcile free will in an outcome that the show itself, again, we just quoted the Lyndon Stewart exchange, the show itself has established as deterministic. Katie tells Lily, in order to get her to Devs where they need her, about, this is when Lily is at Forrest's house, about, quote, an unknown event, and it triggers a total breakdown in cause and effect, a breakdown of determinism, a breakdown of the literal laws of the universe. The time of it, Lily's role in it, all of it. And this is worth thinking about because this setup for the fact that the thing Lily does will change and undo everything. Mm-hmm. And also the later in the finale, the way that Forrest and Katie discuss the choice that Lily made and the impact that it has, that actually affirms that the show does think Lily did something genuinely unique by making a choice. Like, not that the fact that she tosses the gun away is supposed to confirm for us that we all have the capacity to do that, even though I think that is what we think and what we look for often in our stories. In moments like this, I think the show is saying that she broke something because 
people don't typically do that. And I find that level of either complexity or confusion a little bit disappointing and unmooring. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, I agree. I think that there is, on rewatch, we're set up to kind of buy into this idea that Lily is somehow special. Mm-hmm. Special in a way, not like you're very good at numbers. You can recite numbers up to, you know, like five digits. Not in that way, but in a, in a way that's kind of beyond human experience to the point where this incredible quantum supercomputer that can hold the states of every particle in the universe can't figure out what she's going to do at a particular moment in time. And I think the implications of that for the story aren't really sold in the way that they should be because, like, therefore, isn't she the Messiah? Like, what is it about her that makes her so beyond the capability of this device to measure? Like, what is it about her that makes her almost, like, superhuman in that sense? And I think that never really lands in a way that is truly satisfying. Like, the shock that registers on Forrest's face when she throws away the gun, right? Right. It seemingly comes out of left field for me. Like, that's where the kind of dissatisfaction, a lot of it arises from, is this feeling that Lily is this super person. That's the reaction to it. But it's seemingly this vast kind of like conceptual leap from what she does to the reaction to what she does. So she's not positioned as the Messiah, the way that Forrest positions himself or maybe more accurately his work. Right. She's positioned by Katie in the exchange with Katie and Forrest in the finale as the disruptor. She's Adam and Eve, right? She as Katie will say, was disobedient. Right. She bit the apple. Yes. But again, I think you could look at that a couple different ways. On the one hand, you could say, well, Adam and Eve, that is then confirming that humans, us, all the people who stem from Adam and Eve, can make choices and do. It also, though, it does solidify this idea that what Lily did is an origin point of actual change that she altered something about the fabric of the universe and human nature, which, again, other people should feel however they feel about that. For me, I don't like. I don't dislike that the show asked the question. I think that's great. That's not where I come down on it because that actually means that everybody else, until Lily did that, that their choices didn't matter. Right. Which I thought is like anathema to me. Agree. Again, I think when you take into account the scale of what the devs machine does, which is with a small data set, is able to extrapolate the state of everything in the universe, everything across the galaxy, in the solar system, on Neptune, on planets that we don't, we're not even aware of. It can look there, right? Right. What Earth was like a billion years ago. But somehow, Lily is able to do something that it can't see to the point that its ability to understand what is happening on the moon or in China or a hundred yards away is completely thrown off by her decision, not anything else that happens in the world. Like, again, as you said, it makes it as if none of that other stuff matters except for this. And I just think that the implications of that are- Pretty dismaying. Are incredible and very troubling. 
Yeah, so think about as a contrast the scene in episode seven where we see the entire dev staff in the visualization chamber looking one second into their future. And they are all completely freaked out. That scene is in alignment with this presentation of Lily as somebody who actually did alter something, did do something different, was unique, was was special. But I just didn't think made any sense. Like, they're watching, and again, maybe part of it hinges on the fact that other than Stuart, it's a bunch of characters we don't know or have any connection to. But they're watching, oh, I, I see that I move my arm. And then a second later in real life, I move it. I hear myself say something, and then I say it. And I'm just sitting here watching this screaming at my TV, just don't move your arm. Just don't say the thing that you just heard yourself say. And the implication that those people are actually incapable of doing that is distressing to me. It is. You know, Ted Chiang has a great, I've talked about Exhalation, his latest collection of short stories quite a bit. But the, the very first story in that is called The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate. And it's about like this uh, merchant in Baghdad who has this, basically it creates these time travel rings that you can go through and they're set at different times in the past. And it encounters this problem of like, okay, you know what's going to happen, so just don't do the thing. But really solves that problem in a way that's brilliant and also very human and tragic in a sense. This kind of doesn't do that. Again, like to your point, it's a second. Don't do the thing that you just saw. Like, just watch what that person is doing and don't do that and see what happens. Right. So like a moment I enjoyed that taps into the tension that that insight would cause gets back to the question you were asking earlier. How could you live your life if you knew what was going to happen? I thought it was important that characters voice that at some point. And we got that from Lyndon in the conversation with Katie before Lyndon's death, when Katie's like, why didn't you ever peek? And the answer is, of course, not because, oh, it was a rule, boss. Nobody gives a shit about that. Lyndon said, why ask a question when you've already heard the answer? I don't want to know the future. It's not that strange. While I have the illusion of free will, I have the illusion of free will. So two responses to that. One, this is binge mode, we would say. Free will is not an illusion. It's the entire point. But... In the universe of devs, I found that really refreshing to hear a character voice the fact that it would be completely, completely debilitating to know what the future meant. And this is, I think, a good moment to compare it, as you're just starting to do, to some other fantasy and sci-fi stories that bring the future into play. You know, think about Watchmen, the Lindelof HBO version of it, where, spoiler for Watchmen, if you haven't seen it yet, you should, it's great. Dr. Manhattan blocks his own brain. Yeah. At the expense of being, for that stretch of time, Dr. Manhattan, so that he can experience true human existence, a relationship, love. Because he he knows, he understands that those things are not compatible. You cannot actually live your life and fall in love with somebody and experience the rhythm of an everyday routine if you know what's going to happen, you cannot do it. You mentioned Ted Chiang. What about Story of Your Life? The short yeah. story that Arrival's based on. That's a great one for examining how knowledge of the future can or does or does not impact yeah. the choice you make. Will you still decide to have that relationship, to have that child? 
if you know what's going to happen, can you stop yourself? Would you want to? Those are incredibly interesting things to think about. And the moments where devs ask us to think about them are some of the highs of the show, just not always the primary ambition. I want to ask you a moral question about this. Sure. You know, we talked about this a lot with Game of Thrones and the question of how or whether Bran could rule effectively, should be allowed to rule as the Three-Eyed Raven, as somebody who had the capacity to know the future. Can you be trusted to guide other people if you know their fates? So you think about something like the Katie Linden scene. I think you're mostly supposed to think about that from Linden's perspective. You climb over the rail and you balance and you know, because it was the conversation you just had that in attempting to affirm your devotion to the multiverse, you'll be alive in some worlds, but you'll also be dead in others. Right. Yes. (laughs) And you will have no experience of the other worlds. Right. If he falls, he will only experience the world in which he falls. If he doesn't fall, he will only experience the world in which he does not fall. Right. What about from Katie's perspective, though? Because there's the aspect on the surface of Katie having seen this. You know, we know for a fact Katie has seen this and knows how it plays out. Forrest says, remember, Lyndon's in your car. There's that whole thing. Katie says to Lyndon, I've watched us have this conversation a million times and I never tell you whether you fall because then it can't be an act of faith. I'm watching this and I'm like, Katie's a murderer. Yeah. Right? Katie's a murderer. Because Katie does know the outcome. This is an act of bullshittery on Katie's part to an incredible degree, whether she realizes it or not. It's like, okay, you can't tell Lyndon if he falls because it negates the act of the belief, but then you are telling yourself by the act of observing the future what the future is. So that negates your belief in what is occurring. So essentially, yeah, you're a murderer. Like, why not just push him then and say, well, there are also other worlds in which I do not push him. I mean, Katie's answer to why not push him would be because I I have seen that I don't. But it all ends up in the same place. Back to Forrest and Lily and Katie and Stuart in the final showdown. It is obviously no accident that in this moment where Lily has arrived at Dev's, despite saying that she won't, she's speaking about herself almost like she's a machine, not a human being. What? Not who or whom. I don't know what I am anymore. Something that makes no decisions. You know, something, not someone. Yeah. Has no choices. Follows a path. It can't see. It, not I. I'm not even choosing the words I speak now. And Forrest's stance, though, fueled by love and hope and a desire to escape culpability, is ultimately incredibly nihilistic. I hope I don't sound unsympathetic, he says, but I've taken nothing from you. I can't take what you never had. The sense that you were participating in life was only ever an illusion. Life is just something we watch unfold like pictures on a screen. I'm allergic to that. It's not what I wanted. I felt very grateful that the show ended up disproving Forrest's stance, though I think introducing a level of confusion by ultimately giving him what he wanted or at least a version of it in the end. So... Jay, I think another aspect of this that's interesting to discuss, there are a lot of Black Mirror comps you could make, certainly. Mm -hmm. San Junipero I thought about a lot while watching this as something that I thought ultimately explored this more successfully. But there's a USS Callister question here, too. Sure. Like, the other people in the sim don't know they're in the sim, in devs. They didn't choose to be in the sim. And so is it right to put them there? And if... Forrest says and Katie says there is no difference. 
everybody says this, the sim is akin to reality. Then you are playing God. And that is why Farah says, oh, it is deus then. Speaking of Black Mirror, Forrest, it's all data. <laughs> that was one of the wild. It's like, Speech. I think Alyssa, uh, our colleague Alyssa Bereznak tweeted, did big data write this? <laughs> she had a still of that scene. <laughs> a very tough scene. Not my favorite. But the substance of what he's saying, if not the way in which he says it, does lend itself to another Black Mirror comp. Something like Be Right Back. Where yeah. is it the same? You know, Farah says, if you have the data, you have her breath, the tone of her voice, her thoughts and memories, her love for me, her knowledge of my love for her. It's not a film of Amaya. It is Amaya. She's alive. And he believes that because he has to. But think about Be Right Back. Is that Ash? Was it ever good enough to be Ash? Did it ever feel like him fully and truly? But then that's where San Junipero comes back into it, too, because part of what makes that so beautiful as a story is that the love that Yorkie and Kelly find together is as real as anything that either of them ever experienced. Black Mirror in an hour or an hour and a half, I think, can reach a high with those questions that devs never quite hit, even though they are interested in the same question. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's because... And I'm sure Garland, listen, will disagree with this. But I think that, like, Black Mirror puts the characters and their wants and needs and feelings central in a way that this show doesn't really do. The concepts really are front and center. And the idea that the debate between determinism and free will are front and center. And the implications of the dev supercomputer are put front and center. Not so much Forrest's pain and his desire to reconnect with his daughter, even though, I, again, I, I think Garland and the showrunners would disagree. I think the ending is a good example of that. In storytelling, there have to be some kind of stakes. We've said it again and again. Forrest is a person who's committed or ordered murders. He hasn't done them with his own hand, but he's set in motion events that have led to murder. And now he's oh, yeah. back, reconnected with his daughter before Sergei applies to devs and therefore the murders haven't been committed yet, but he is that person with the knowledge of those events. Sure. And those have been wiped away. His culpability, he will never pay a price for that. His only price is that he exists in a machine that looks and feels and just like the world that he just left. And if somebody pulls a plug somewhere, he just ceases to exist, but it would be painless and he wouldn't know it happened. But there's no price to be paid. And I think that, That's kind of like antithetical to good stories. If there is, at the end of it, no real price. He died in the real world, but he's alive, essentially. He killed people, but nothing will be done. He gets to be happy with his daughter again. Yeah, I think that's also like an interesting contrast to some other staples of this kind of storytelling where typically, you know, if you think of like Cersei and Maggie the Frog's prophecy in Game of Thrones or Voldemort hearing the snippet of Trelawney's prophecy from Snape that he hears in Harry Potter, characters tend to act in a way that will, they hope, allow them to avoid the future they have seen. And Forrest is, of course, moving toward it because moving toward it is the way to achieve what you just described, which is escaping all culpability, not only for the impetus of all of this, which is Amaya's death, But for all of those other things he's done along the way, that's why he's able to say to Lily, I've taken nothing from you. Because he actually believes that that's true. That that is very troubling. And I think 
I think that gets us to the question of how the show explores the tech messiah and that yeah. idea. You know, all of these visual aspects, the the halos around the trees in the forest, which I think is like visually incredible. Symbolically, not the most subtle thing, you know, a halo hanging over the head of a creator, this ability to illuminate your path, but also mask the thing that's ahead or above in that case. What do they keep seeing in The Sim? Jesus. Think of Forrest's hair. Deus as the name. None of this stuff is (laughs) subtle. There are so many moments where characters just outright say tech geniuses are bad. (laughs) You know, think of like the Stuart Linden exchange. He's a tech genius. Those laws are secondary. Do you really want something as powerful as devs in the hands of someone crazy? Or the Jamie Lilly exchange. You know the problem with the people who run tech companies? They have too much power or drive them crazy. They end up thinking they're messiahs. Lily to Forrest. Forrest, you know the thing about messiahs, don't you? They're false prophets. This was after, of course, Forrest had said, they're resurrected. Stuart's poems. These are worth talking about for a minute. The two poetry reads. Beautiful. We get Philip Larkin, mm-hmm. the end of episode seven, and then we get Yates. Yates is the second coming, the beginning of episode eight. Spoiler, Larkin, bad guy. Yeah, Larkin. Yeah. Yikes. Wolf. You can Google that. Rough. The poem, though, Abod, which is very long. We don't hear all of it in the show. But if you just look at the full text, there are so many snippets here that you understand very clearly why it is included and what message we are getting about Forrest and his work. Things like, an only life can take so long to climb, clear of its wrong beginnings and may never, but at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in all ways, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true. Or, this is a special way of being afraid, no trick dispels, religion used to try, that vast moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die. Or, and so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small and focused blur, a standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen. This one will, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This Mm -hmm. is an unambiguous indictment of Forrest and his work, quite clearly. And Stewart is an effective character in saying, this is wrong. This is unholy. This should not be allowed. That's why I have to try to stop it, though, of course, in stopping it, he helps bring it about. That is one of the ways in which it is not clear where the show actually comes down on its own message. But as Stuart says, such big decisions being made about our future by people who know so little about our past because he is <laughs> dismayed that Forrest can't identify the poem. And then there's the very funny moment later where Katie- I think was, it's, it's like Shakespeare, I think. <laughs> right. You think Katie's the smart one and she doesn't know it either. This is alarming to them. And then the second coming at the beginning of episode eight, which is, of course- about the rise of a new messiah, a new age. We played a snippet of it at the top of the podcast, and hilariously, the show <laughs> truncates one of the most famous poems in the history of the world. <laughs> the absolute gall to edit Yates. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible stuff. So this is what I want to ask you, Jay. With all of that as the backdrop, yeah, Forrest was wrong. He ends up accepting that the multiverse is real. He says to Katie, yes, I understand. I want to be with... Amaya, even though, and I think one of the most incredible scenes is when Forrest is explaining to Lily in the sim what happens and we flash to all the different versions of that conversation. Sometimes they're in paradise, sometimes they're in hell. But he got paradise at least once. And so I think you can say he won. He is 
resurrected. He says to Lily, we're in the system resurrection as promised. So if he is presented as this foul new Messiah misguided in control of something that should not be allowed, why does the show end with him achieving his goal and then Katie doing everything she can to protect it? What message does that send? I think that the show is not sure. I mean, I think even Forrest would say that he's only doing what the machine tells him to do, essentially. One way to read it is we don't have free will. Everything is determinism. This is how everything shakes out. Another way to look at it is you're watching pictures on a screen that tell you what to do, and then you just do that. Yeah, that's why ultimately I think the fact that they land with, oh, Lily made a choice, free will does matter, Even if it was the outcome you wanted, which for me it was, feels a little hollow. It's because so much else of what the show explores is so staunchly in the deterministic camp. And, you know, like in the Steppenwall Rolling Stone interview with Garland, Steppenwall asked him this, is determinism a philosophy that you yourself ascribe to? And he said, any position I could take on that is only like a belief system. I just simply don't know, which, of course— But my instincts are toward determinism rather than against it. My hunch is that the thing we call free will is not what we think of it. So that is clarifying and informs a lot about the nature of his work, even if we do not necessarily agree with it or would want to. I think there's a way to interpret it as an outcome of compatibilism, you know, where free will and determinism can coexist. You know, your choice dictates your fate in your world, but there are also, in the devs, deus universe, many others Pains me to say it, but the cat is always both dead and alive, and it's up to you whether you open the door to find out. In a sense, I wonder if, like, storytelling is the correct medium to grapple with this idea because choice just has to matter in stories Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You really can't, in a story that grips people, and obviously this is subjective, I find it really hard to come down on the side of pure determinism in a story that will capture your imagination. It always has to be about a character making a choice. And that, yes, they do come down on that at the end, but only kind of. It's it's very hedged. Right. I don't know if it's possible to make a story about pure determinism, where everything that happens happens because it was supposed to happen and the story was pre-written. The interesting spaces are always on the margins of that, where where determinism meets free will and where the shades of gray happen and where you're not sure whether a choice is right to make because you've seen it before. It's just not compelling to me in any kind of way beyond the moral questions to be told you will do this because that's what will happen. Right. And that also connects back to, you know, whether the characters as human beings are compelling enough and then whether it matters if that is the case, right? If that is the ecosystem in which they operate. You know, we could just talk about this very, very quickly because we've hit on their motivation a lot already. But I think of something like the fact that Lily is presented to us as an encryption specialist. And I'm like, why did that matter? Did that matter? Other than the symbolic significance. And obviously the show is rife with symbols as is all of Garland's work, in a way that, you know, generally I enjoy. But other than the fact that symbolically it is profound to think about hiding or uncovering something, unlocking or protecting it is compelling, Lily's actual background doesn't matter other than people telling us it matters. The most important thing I learned about Lily in the entire show 
was the flashback with her dad in the hospital. Yeah. Where we hear him say, no man ever steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and he is not the same man. And he tells her that it's an ancient Greek saying and that in time, she will come to understand it. That's the kind of idea I want to watch eight hours about, you know? And, And again, that's just me personally. But Forrest building a massive looming statue of his daughter. Yes, it's a symbol. Of course, her death has defined his life. It looms over his work and every decision that he makes. He's living in his old home. Her bedroom is preserved. Everything about his life before her death is preserved. I was most interested in the moment. And again, I was moved by his loss. I found that flashback pretty gutting. But I found the most interesting thing that Forrest said in the entire show to be when he was watching the cave paintings with Katie. On the one hand, every time they're watching something in the visualization chamber or telling another character that they've seen the future, I found myself thinking, like, do they have time turners? They're watching the next (laughs) few months and days this many times. How? Anyway, when he said some of the wall paintings are 5,000 years apart, 5,000 years in the same place, making the same images, how could nothing have changed in so much time? That's really interesting to me. Yes. That is a human response. Yes, it's a scientific response. It's an entrepreneurial response. But that's just thinking about what it means to be alive, what it means to go through every day, putting one foot in front of the other and either doing the same thing again or trying to do something different. And I did find myself thirsting for more moments where the characters, in a way that we could see, tried to grapple with something like that. Yeah, same. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about like the very flat measured performances are kind of across the board mm-hmm. on this show. And I think that to your earlier point of people don't speak that way, there is a level of detachment and coldness that yeah. made the show hard to engage with at certain times. You know, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I, we invented a computer that's God, if you were told that, mm-hmm. you'd be like, wow, I want to know so much more. A natural human response would be like, holy shit, what? Yes. Tell me everything (laughs) about this thing. Um, Not, okay, I guess I'll leave now. Bye. No, these are very basic things, but I think that that's that's part of what made it hard to engage with some of these concepts sometimes. That gets us to the next question, which is, is Alex Garland creating some sort of shared universe across his stories. Obviously, he is interested in exploring the same ideas and the same questions. You know, he now has a show called Deus and a movie called Ex Machina. Ex Machina. creating Deus Ex Machina, God from the Machine, across his work. And in the Seppenwall interview, Seppenwall asked him, when did the idea occur to you that the true title Deus would make this a pairing with Ex Machina? So asked him about these, these works being paired. And he said, I had it in my head that there was a companion piece to Ex Machina. If Ex Machina is about a man who is trying to act as if he's God via technology and science, I thought there's a companion story, which is about people not trying to act as if they're God, but trying to create God. So this was the deus bit of the deus Ex Machina. (laughs) Okay. I will just, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit. I cackled when this reveal came out. Me too. I, yeah. I was Me like, too. oh, come, come on now. <laughs> yeah. 
It was one of those things where I was like annoyed at myself that I hadn't seen it coming because in hindsight, it's so it's right there. apparent. Yeah. I love the idea of connecting your work. I love the idea of exploring the same things. I think on a more micro level, even though he is very interested in the macroscopic, obviously, as Katie voices often in the show, there are a lot of interesting things to point to about these connections. To have one of your characters literally say it's a private joke <laughs> about your own <laughs> private joke I know, was a little on the nose for me. But I think if we quickly run through some of these other connections or similarities, it does craft an interesting Amaya-esque looming totem to these shared principles that he is interested in returning to time and time again. You know, Annihilation and Devs are very different stories. And obviously, he didn't write Annihilation. He's adapting. Famously, after reading once. (laughs) Right. Read it once. Was like, let's go. Let's make this. But... Devs and Ex Machina, obviously more similar, but all of them have common threads and connective tissue. You know, as as Lena says in Annihilation, there's this aspect of creating something new that Garland is interested in exploring, something lasting. All of these stories explore agency. They all explore the nature of consciousness. I think, crucially, they all explore duplicates. You know, think of all the cell splitting you see in Annihilation. And then, of course, the question of, is that Kane? Is that Lena? Who is the real person if there are multiple versions of that person? Exactly. Think of all of the versions that lead up to Ava, who was then finally able to break free in Ex Machina, or the many, many Amayas in the multiverse here. Then think about something like the infinity symbol, which we mentioned briefly earlier, Lily wearing an infinity symbol necklace. Not at the beginning of the show, though, as she gains insight later, which is an interesting choice. Think about the Ouroboros tattoos in Annihilation. Cycles, the eternal return, immortality in a certain form, at least, this idea of infinite possibilities and worlds. Think of what the word and the name Amaya means, both Forrest's daughter and, of course, his company in which devs exists. Also, interestingly, perhaps coincidentally, the fort name in Annihilation, Fort Amaya, another parallel across works. What does this mean? What is the etymology? Mother, mother city, the end, pleasant place, all of these different ways that you can yeah. parse it, all of which fit to the function in the story. Similarly, Lily, an early model of the AI in Ex Machina, is named Lily, and now Lily is the main character in Devs. These things are not accidental. What does the Lily represent symbolically? Purity, motherhood, rebirth, also death. He's obviously also very interested in exploring tech gods. You know, Nathan has that incredible line to Caleb about being godly. I turned to Caleb, and he looked up at me and said, you're not a man, you're a god. And then Caleb is like, I never said that. Shouts to Domnell Gleeson. One of the yeah, yeah. Shouts to yes, yeah, shouts to Oscar Isaac, who absolutely crushes his performance and whose dance with Sonoya is like a highlight yeah. of the freaking movie. Dance with her. Great name. <laughs> Get a fucking you cut dance, up the with dance her? floor. Great scene. Great movie. Human beings always trying to conquer a force, whether it's the Shimmer AI Deus, that is beyond and probably should be beyond their control this idea of them as messiahs. There's also this connection, on an auditory connection and visual connection, you know, the score, the sound, the breakdown of the in Annihilation that you did for that pod was one of my favorite things you've ever done on the pod. And like the way that the composition of the score from Ben Salisbury, Jeff Barrow, who also did Ex Machina and Annihilation, 
come into play, the soundtrack song inclusions here. All of this stuff applies not only to devs, but to all of Garland's work. He's looking for this element of consistency, but continuing to access the question in a slightly different way. Jason? Yes. I think binge mode is how you've put yourself on trial. It's judge and jury. (laughs) If it works, determinism precludes free will and you're absolved. You did no wrong. But if it doesn't work, you had choices and you're guilty. All I did was I was on the phone. It's not my fault. (laughs) Either way, please gather the encryption crew and head to the lab to teach us everything we need to know about Everett's many worlds interpretation and the science behind the show. The idea of a multiverse, myriad parallel universes, each slightly different from one another, existing at the same time, is not just an idea for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is an actual reading of quantum mechanics, which was published in 1957 by a then doctoral student named Hugh Everett. His paper, titled Theory of the Universal Wave Function, was met with silence and derision at the time. It is still divisive, as we'll discuss. But in the decades since, the idea has gained traction and is essentially a respectable interpretation of quantum physics. But before we get to that, let's first attempt, and I say again, attempt. Attempt! (laughs) If I get this wrong, quantum physics heads out there, I apologize, to explain why such an interpretation is even necessary. In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, an apple bonked an Englishman on the head. And there was classical physics, the physics of Isaac Newton, the apple falling from the tree. Newton, an English polymath and bona fide genius, published Principia Mathematica in 1687. And this laid the groundwork for modern physics. After Newton, if you threw an apple, you could, using his principles of motion, accurately describe the trajectory of the apple as it flies and predict with great accuracy where the apple will land. The math works with apples, rocks, boulders, artillery shells, and even planets and large stellar bodies. Input information about an object or a collection of objects, position and momentum and the forces acting on the object, and classical physics provides a clear picture of just what is happening. So clear that in 1814, the French mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace proposed that a godlike intelligence could, in principle, know the momentums and positions of every object in the universe and therefore would be able to predict everything that would happen in the future, and know with a certainty everything that had happened in the past. The thought experiment is known as Laplace's demon, replaced the all-knowing demon with a super-powerful quantum computer, and bingo, you have devs, or deus. In his book, Something Deeply Hidden, Sean Carroll, a theoretical physicist, author, and professor at Caltech, writes, quote, Physics aspires to figure out what kinds of stuff the world is made of, how the stuff naturally changes over time, and how various bits of stuff interact with each other. Gradually, over the course of the 19th century and early 20th centuries, a new kind of physics, quantum physics, was developed to describe the minuscule stuff that all the stuff we see is made of. It's very complicated, and it's hard to grasp, but I'm not going to pretend that I actually understand it, really. <laughs> but, the differences between, <laughs> but the differences between classical and the new quantum mechanics are, in broad strokes, easy to understand. Classical mechanics is very good at describing how everything we see and experience works. Quantum physics is a tool for describing how the things we can't see, electrons, photons, and stuff that's even smaller, 
move and react, how that stuff works. But where classical physics clearly describes and predicts an object's state, i.e. its position and momentum, quantum mechanics describes a particle state as instead a range of possible positions and possible momentums. This range of probable states is called the wave function. In quantum mechanics, an electron isn't in a specific position. It is in what's called a superposition, which includes every possible position it could be in. Until, and here's where quantum mechanics gets like, starts to get super weird. Until a measurement is made. This is bizarre stuff. When the position of an electron or any of these particles that quantum physics is involved in explaining, whenever the position of an electron is measured, it appears in an actual discrete position, not a superposition. So what happens to all these other probabilities? Over the course of two years, from 1925 to 1927, physicists Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, you know him from Breaking Bad, you might also know him as the mastermind behind the Nazi atomic weapons program, came up with an explanation commonly called the Copenhagen interpretation. Very basically, according to this, the wave function of this electron collapses into a position when the electron is observed. A whole bunch of questions come up from this. Who, what does observed mean? Who is the observer? This is all super weird and mind-bending. The wave function, the superposition of all possible positions of the electron, simply just collapses into the one position which we see. Erwin Schrödinger, whose famous equation is one of the landmarks underpinning quantum physics, devised an even more famous thought experiment after corresponding with Albert Einstein about the thorny implications of the Copenhagen interpretation. A cat is trapped in a steel chamber. Sorry, Mel. Hate this. Hate this. A Geiger counter is rigged to a hammer, which, (sighs) if triggered, shatters a flask containing acid, which then kills the cat. A weak weak radioactive substance is placed next to the Geiger counter. The cat could be alive if the substance hasn't yet emitted a small amount of radiation, which would trigger the Geiger counter. Or it could be dead if the substance has. But until you look in the box, you don't know. Thus, until the observer intervenes, the cat exists in a superposition of being alive and dead at the same time. Is the cat not an observer? Believe me, people have thought about this. Quantum mechanics is the best tool we have for explaining the subatomic world, but it allows for things which do not comport with our experienced reality. Now, there are some who would say maybe that doesn't matter. If the tool works, perhaps we shouldn't worry too much about exactly how it works. Forrest kind of sums this up when he says, I'm afraid we are magicians. Mm -hmm. Toward the end of the story, after creating a device, you know, which can predict the future, access alternate timelines, and effectively bring the dead back to life. If You and me and cats and everything in the world are made up of these tiny particles. If an electron is in a superposition of all possible positions, why aren't we in a superposition also? Why don't we perceive reality in that way? Schrodinger's cat experiment was designed to show how difficult squaring Copenhagen is with observable real life. How ridiculous, in a sense, it is. Everett's interpretation says, forget the wave function collapse bit from Copenhagen. Throw that out. That's just a thing that we added on to the pure equations. Forget that. Instead, just follow what the numbers say. All possible positions 
still exist. Everett's interpretation says that the cat is literally both dead and alive at the same time, just in parallel universes. Open the box in one branch and you'll see a living cat, and in another branch, you see a dead one, depending on what the radioactive substance did in that particular version of the world. Several scenes in the show depicted this, most notably the flashbacks of Forrest witnessing the car crash that killed Amaya, in which, in other worlds, the event shook out slightly differently, and these other worlds are overlapped with the scene that we see. Everett's interpretation leaves us with so many questions. When do the worlds split off from each other? And what separates them from each other? Why can't we access these other worlds from the world that we are in? And what constitutes a branching? Here on Earth, there are infinite interactions taking place every moment, right? And at the same time, countless interactions between objects and particles and who knows what else are happening in the farthest corners of the universe, Are all of these branches, there must be then an infinite number of alternate worlds. And the implications for causality and free will are obvious and troubling, really. And it's no wonder that philosophy is tied up in the implications that arise from quantum physics. The response to Everett's paper was overwhelmingly negative. In the decades since, it's become more accepted and various other interpretations and tweaks to it have been made by very, very brilliant people. Still, It has many detractors. Roger Penrose, professor emeritus at Oxford, mentioned in the episode five flashback scene where Forrest meets Katie after the lecture on many worlds interpretation, is an outspoken critic. Quote, the trouble is what can you do with it? Nothing, Penrose said in 2009. You want a physical theory that describes the world that we see around us. That's what physics has always been. Explain what the world we see does and why or how it does it. Many worlds, quantum mechanics doesn't do that. Either you accept it and try to make sense of it, which is what a lot of people do, or like me, you say, no, that's beyond the limits of what quantum mechanics can tell us. Penrose has his own interpretation of waveform collapse, which involves factoring in the curvature of space-time, and forget it, we're not even going to delve into that. The other interpretation mentioned in that flashback scene that we just mentioned, the one that Katie loudly objects to, is the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation. In 1932... There are undergrads listening to this podcast, Jason. How dare you? They might believe what you're saying. In 1932, mathematician John von Neumann argued that an observer's subjective perception could play a role in the wave function collapse. In the 1960s, physicist Eugene Wigner, who won a Nobel Prize, again, these are brilliant people, built on this and similar arguments put forward by Fritz London and Edmund Bauer in 1939, saying that quantum mechanics allows for the possibilities that human consciousness plays a role in wave function collapse. Now, I'm going to quote Wigner at length here. Quote, all that quantum mechanics purports to provide are probability connections between subsequent impressions of the consciousness, and even though the dividing line between the observer, whose consciousness is being affected, and the observed physical object can be shifted toward the one or the other to a considerable degree, it cannot be eliminated. It may be premature to believe that the present philosophy of quantum mechanics will remain a permanent feature of future physical theories. It will remain remarkable in whatever way our future concepts may develop that the very study of the external world led to the conclusion that the content of the consciousness is an ultimate reality. Critics of this approach, of which Katie is one, would argue that it's basically unprovable and therefore magical thinking, a.k.a. pseudoscience. After writing his paper, Everett got his doctorate from Princeton and went to work for the Pentagon. 
Cold War was ramping up and the military needed to know, you know, just how bad a nuclear war might possibly be. Spoiler, really bad. In 1960, he helped write Weapons System Management Group Number 50, a still-classified report, which is thought to have laid the groundwork for the strategy of mutually assured destruction. He later formed his own consulting company, Lambda Corporation, which was involved with various kinds of military modeling, including nuclear war game simulations. He died in 1982 at the age of 51. Or did he? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's just as many worlds where he kept going. Great point, man. Maybe he's with Forrest and Lily in the sim right now, playing Sudoku with Sergey, who doesn't know he's in the sim. (laughs) Think of it that way. Watching Arthur Miller make love to Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) Well, then he'd need to be in the visualization chamber with Stuart. Mal, they're having the tech nerd's wettest dream, the one that reduces everything to nothing. Nothing but code! And we're having the podcaster's wettest dream, making up our own spinoffs. Let's roll like the Fibonacci sequence infinitely through the aid of the dev spinoffs we'd like to see lightning round style. You go first. Oh, boy. So many characters on devs we barely got to learn anything about. And hopefully when these spinoffs become real, we will. Let's start with number zero. The American century of old man strength, an adventure of the week style show that treats us to procedural snapshots of Kenton beating up grown adults half his age. How does he do it? Strategic flashbacks to Kenton's strength building CIA years abroad provide key character arc insight. Listen, this took me out of it. (laughs) Especially him holding Jamie You got like, so mad about this. And people will say, oh, Mike Ehrmantraut, like, come on. Ehrmantraut carried a gun. He carried a gun. <laughs> and the gun, he would put the gun on Get people and make gun, them- He uses it to kill Jamie. At the very end. When you show up at my apartment, breaking and entering- then fill the bathtub and want me to get in and hold me under. It's not happening. We're going to scrap it out, dude. And maybe you'll win, but you know what? I'm going to fuck you up, too. You're going to have black eyes. You're going to be hurt. I'm not just going to meekly get in the club and you're just going to hold me under. That's not going to happen. Number one, the other Americans. When Elizabeth and Philip Jennings went home, Sergey, Pete, and Anton had West instead. This is the other Americans. Mind the gap between the wheel and the chassis. Number one, in case you can't tell, we're doing a Fibonacci sequence numbering here. Stewart after dark. Stuart, <laughs> tired of living in an RV and realizing Amaya is his last chance at a life-altering payday, makes a fateful decision. He begins sneaking into the devs facility when no one is there so that he can record videos of historical figures having sex, which he then sells on the dark web. But how long until his scheme unravels? Mal, what historical figures having sex would you like to watch? <laughs> Oh, God. Um, Boy, perhaps because this would have been my answer no matter what, and perhaps because Stuart actually mentions Mark Antony to uh, Forrest when mocking how little he knows of real world history. I'm going to go with Mark Antony and Cleopatra. How about you? It's a great one. It's a great one. Oh, man. Jeez. I guess like JFK and anyone. Hot take. (laughs) I believe that JFK probably was a bad lay, but I'd like to see it. Because you think he's a selfish lover or? Well, he had the back injury. He had like a back <laughs> surgery. He couldn't really, range of motion was obviously uh, not what it should be. I feel like Uncle Junior right now saying this. Oh, <laughs> Kennedy. Incredible. Next. Number two. 
Silicon Forest, the Garland expanded universe mixed with Silicon Valley's unique sense of humor. Let's have a Maya's Forest and Blue Book's Nathan fight for placement in Ehrlich Bachman's incubator. (laughs) Silicon Forest, coming to Quibi on an app store near you. Number three, the sensational Sir Stewart, the fine folks behind the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, apply their keen eye to Stewart's moonlight hobby as a prodigy on delay on the poetry slam scene. I would love to see this. People would be like, wait a second, isn't that Yates? (laughs) (laughs) Number five, lone sim survivor. Senator Lane thought the U.S. government hit the power tech jackpot when agreeing to Katie's request to help keep Deus running. But when Senator Lane is chosen as the lone survivor amid the Ava-driven attack that brings Garland's (laughs) shared universe to its knees, the senator faces a life of loneliness and leadership in Kiefer Sutherland's glasses. Eight, Love is Building Blind. In the follow-up to Netflix breakout hit Love is Blind, Forrest selects the sculptor who will bring his dead child's haunting visage to the tranquil tree line. But there's a twist. Can you pick the right artist based only on that sculptor's ability to describe their design? I would say that given the end product, the answer is clearly yes. Number 13. This is her shocked face. A game show in which contestants compete by telling Lily amazing tech-related breakthroughs, such as, I made a computer that's basically God, to see if they can prompt a minimally emotional reaction from her. Buckingham Palace guards glare at me from your woods. Jason? Yes? If I tell you today's winner, it negates your act of belief. Oh, come on. A mystic walking over unlit coals. Still, here at Binge Mode, we'd like to honor the character idea that rallied the troops advanced the cause. And today, the winner of our $10 million devs payout is... The multiverse. the multiverse. Devs, what a great look for our guys, the infinite worlds of the multiverse. <laughs> great look. While the human heartbeat of devs could at times leave something to be desired and the conceptual conclusions did not always feel completely cohesive, we always enjoy a story that asks us to think about these kinds of philosophical questions about the nature of humanity, about consciousness, about agency, about our shared experience. We are grateful to devs for giving us cause to think about those things anew. Whether or not you believe in the Everett interpretation in particular, Garland's work provides the impetus to at least consider it, as well as poetry and symbolism. Well, friends, it's an amazing thing where Binge Mode will take you. The road you'll travel, the lengths to which you'll go. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Graham, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode and that you are, of course, staying healthy and staying safe. We will be back next week to chat about Saga. While, of course, we will be taking the entire Saga arc to date into account as we are wont to do. So that's all 54 issues. We're going to focus first on book one, or if you have it uh, printed in a different way, that's volumes one, two, and three, or issues one through 18. That's what we're going to be hitting first, taking the whole thing into account, but focusing on that in the next episode. Can't wait. Cannot wait. So hyped. Until then, remember, you did great work. And yes, 
You earned a bath and champagne if that's what you want. Tell accounting we okayed it. This is Abraham Lincoln jacking off. And that guy had a rod. Is this really the, the right application for this? Can we all just get, look at him, look at him go to work. You know, they called him the rail splitter. You could really tell that he did chop wood. My God. The steam engine had only recently been invented, but I'll tell you, there's another steam engine here. It's that jackhammer of, of a forearm that he has. We can switch it to something else. We can watch uh, George Washington give head. He leaves the teeth in. Did you know that? 